it has been a delight to prepare this message, yet there have also been a few experiences along the way that were not so delightful. And so as we think about this topic of delighting in God's commands, I first want to challenge us to consider and think about what was the last command you took delight in? I'm, I'm guessing if someone just walked up to you and asked you, what's the last command you took delight in? Probably the answer is not going to be like the first thing that comes to your mind. You're, you're most likely going to be like me, have to pause and think about that a little bit. I mean, you might have to pause and think about whether you even take delight in commands in the first place, much less trying to figure out what was the last command you took delight in. Commands are probably not the most natural thing we talk to others about in regard to what we delight in. We probably don't find ourselves talking about commands very often. In fact, when I was preparing this message, I started to wonder, so what is it that people love talking about? If they don't love talking about delighting in commands, what do they love talking about? Now, I'm going to give you a second to ponder in your own heart what you think that answer is, because if we're all honest with ourselves, we're probably going to come up with the same answer. What do you think that is? I'll even, I'll even take a couple brave responses from the congregation. What are some things that people love talking about? <laughs> that was too honest too quick, Bob, all right? I was, I was even going to give people like the opportunity to say, Football, turkey, the beach, food. There are a lot of things we can delight in. Why do you have to go straight to themselves? Why do we love talking about ourselves so much? We delight in talking about ourselves. That's the correct answer. The number one thing, at least according to Google, is we take delight. We love to talk about ourselves. Surprisingly, they gave a, a list of five, and commands weren't on that list. Somehow commands did not make Google's list of the top five things we love to talk about. However, we're going to be looking in Psalms 119 this morning, specifically at verses 10 to 16. And as we look at these passages, I want you to consider what are some of the things that David delights to talk about? What are some of the things David takes delight in? I'm going to assume that the way David talks is quite different than the way you talk. I know it's quite different than the way I talk. So let's look at these verses this morning with me. I'll read them out loud. Psalm 119 Verses 10 through 16. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. 
I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. As you think about that, as you reflect on that, we realize that our conversations probably don't take as much delight in expressing our love for God's commands as they should. I mean, we all know what delight looks like on the face, right? Like, I I felt like this really captured that idea of delight. Sometimes children are less restricted in expressing their delight. Adults might say, well, that's not quite appropriate to look at that happy at times, especially if we're talking about commands. But yet, according to David, these were things he took great delight within and things he wrote about. I was challenged and encouraged by Pastor Banks' message last week, especially when he came to discuss the poem God spontaneously created in speaking to Moses. How beautiful the words were. How deep and rich and significant and meaningful and applicable to the very moment and experience Moses was having. How pleasant it is that our God would speak to us in poetry. I imagine there are a number of people here in the audience, my wife being one of them, who wishes people could just spontaneously, perhaps even I had the ability to spontaneously speak such beautiful poetry to her in the moment. Well, I'm thankful I have a God who speaks poetry to my wife, so I don't feel that pressure to continually be coming up with poetry every day and speaking to her. But I would imagine we would all delight in this skill, this ability that God demonstrates. And it's very true here also. In Psalm 119, these are ultimately God-inspired words through David, giving him the inspiration to put down in a song, in a poem, what he is delighting within, the very commands, the very statutes, the very words of God. See, God's poems are quite different than the poems and songs we might often come up with. God's poems, they're beautiful, and yet they are very powerful. They have the ability to penetrate, to illuminate, to even heal the deepest, the darkest parts of our human heart. Perhaps you've turned on the radio before and a certain song penetrated straight to you and it felt like it spoke to your experience. You could just relate with it 100%. I want to challenge you. Open up the book of Psalms. Read some of the songs and the poems collected in that book and see if they don't go deeper than what we might find on the radio or on Spotify or YouTube, or America's Got Talent. God has a way of speaking to the very depths of our human heart, and it resonates with the core of our need. And I think that is one reason why David takes such delight in God's commands. This morning, I've already been blessed 
even without realizing it, I've been blessed. I've delighted in God's commands. In fact, as I prepared this sermon, I realized I actually do delight in God's commands. I often am not even conscious of it. I am not conscious of the reason I'm taking delight in the experiences I take for granted day to day. Some of the uh, possibly practical things, the common things, the normal things that are still very delightful. In fact, as we gathered this morning, I don't know if it happens to you, it happens to me. In fact, I, I remember Lila when she was very young, whenever we would sing in church, she would rock and almost shake the pew of delight and excitement in front of her. All right? There was such delight. As we sang this morning, perhaps your heart felt delight. Perhaps it felt relief and pleasure as we sang together, as we sang to each other these words that are deep and powerful and penetrate our hearts. You see, gathering together is one of the commands of God that we can experientially take delight in. Seeing His words of truth, we can take delight in. Experiencing the presence, not just of God, but of one another, we can take delight in. And we experience that delight because we are being faithful and obeying God's commands. We are, in essence, delighting in the commands of the Lord. David was aware of all the delight that came from the commands of the Lord. But I have this question, why? We, we ought to ask ourselves, why is this so? Why would someone delight in God's commands? Why do I delight in God's commands? I think there's practically two basic reasons. I'm sure we could come up with a whole lot more. But two basic reasons I, I discovered as I reflected on this concept. And the, the first is... is that we delight in God's commands if we love God. If we love God, we will delight in His commands. And the second one is this, that we realize His commands are good for us. You delight in what you find to be good, okay? So we delight in God's commands if we love Him. Our big idea for this morning is that the commands of God are a delight to those who love God, and therefore it's a challenge to me if I'm not finding delight in God's commands. It's not because His command is broken. It's not because His system is broken. It's not because there isn't something to be delighted in. It's because I'm losing sight of my love for God. Or I have hardened my heart, and I have darkened my eyes, and no longer do I see see the love of God for me. And this is the point I'm going to focus on most this morning. This idea of why we delight in God's command and how the love of God moves us, compels us to delight in His commands. In fact, I, I want to read another psalm here, Psalm 63. And uh, I think of this. So if, if David had a, a YouTube channel or a Spotify channel, and he had his top ten playlist, this, I feel like, would be one of the top ten love songs David constructed 
They're very different than the love songs you might hear played in today's world. But listen to the depth and the power. It really puts to shame any love song I might come up with on my own. Psalm 64, I'm just going to read the first four, verse, first four verses to give a picture of David's love for God. It says here, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life. I'm sorry, I said 64. I'm at 63. I mean 63, not 64. Another good psalm. We'll visit that at a different time. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Here David is pouring out his love for the Lord. And we see that demonstrated. This idea of David's love for God is demonstrated right here in Psalm 119 as well in the very first verse we read. Verse 10 said that with my whole heart I seek you. With my whole heart I seek you. That captures that tone of Psalm 63 we just read. David loved God. There are other psalms that also kind of mimic some of this that we see in Psalm 119. It's actually easy to remember. Psalm 19 talks about God's delight, or David's delight in God's word and his commands, just like Psalm 119 focuses on that. So this isn't an isolated psalm. This isn't an isolated concept. But one thing I want to distinguish this morning for us, and I think it's important, is that we do not assume that loving God and obeying his commands are equivalent, okay? Loving God is not the same thing as obeying God. They are two different concepts. And, and in order to kind of emphasize this point, I think we, we might benefit from looking at another passage, another, another writer in Scripture, John. The disciple John See, David is not the only one who talks strange when it comes to commands. He finds other companions who write strange things about commands in the Scriptures. Uh, one of the two passages I think about uh, particularly that come to mind is, is John 14.15 and 1 John 5.3. So let's look at John 14.15 first. It says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you see how that is structured? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. They're not the same things. The Apostle John is separating these two ideas. If you love me seems to come first. You then keep my commands. If you love God, you then delight in his commands. There's, there's two steps here. There's a process, a system. In fact, 1 John 5, 30 also describes this idea. It says here that, that the love of God is that we would keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments 
are not burdensome. These two concepts, although they seem meshed together, they are related, they are connected, there's a relationship. But they are also two separate elements. They are two separate steps in that process. And I like some of John's language here in, in, in 1 John 5. He talks about how the commands are not burdensome. I want to distinguish that from hard, okay? John is not saying that God's commands are not hard, okay? There are many things God calls us to that are hard. They will be some of the hardest things we will ever have to do, like choosing not to make myself the number one thing I love to talk about. <laughs> it's hard. I'm choosing to make God the number one thing I love to talk about. It's a hard thing. But for John and for David, somehow their love for God and God's love for them made it not burdensome, made it a delight, made it a natural expression of their love for God. So there are two concepts here that we are looking at. I believe there's a process, as I've mentioned, found in both John and David's writing. And I think this process starts, obviously, with the love of God. And what this love of God does is that it invites us into relationship. The love of God invites us into relationship. And this is critical. I mean, just think about this practically, all right? If a stranger walks up to you and just gives you a command do this, you're probably going to think, how rude, right? Like, who are you? How could you just automatically assume you can just bark commands to me and then expect me to obey them? However, if I walk up to Malachi or Lila and I tell them to do something, I expect a response. And I would hope they wouldn't be really surprised by me having a request or having a command for them to obey. Why? Because we have a relationship, all right? We have a relationship where love has invited each of us in. Our families ought to be relationships of love that we delight in and invite us into growing in our intimacy, just as it would with God. And so God's Love invites us into relationship. And both David and John are known all right, throughout Scripture as men who greatly were loved by God and men who greatly loved God. David continually talks about God's love throughout all of the Psalms. He uses phrases like loving kindness, steadfast love. David, in fact, is described as a man after God's own heart. All right? David was loved by God, and God's love invited him into relationship. John is also someone who could be characterized as someone who is loved by God. In fact, throughout the Gospels, what do we hear Jesus referencing the disciple of John, the Apostle John, as but his beloved disciple? The disciple in whom I love. That was the title God gave to John. And John's letters, both his gospel and his letters later on, emphasize a continual theme of love as a dominant, dominant topic throughout his writings. 
The Bible reveals this secret, but so does Paul. Paul, in Romans 5.8, also talks about this. I mean, we're all very familiar with John 3.16. It's one of the most popular verses that talks about the love of God. All right? Romans 5.8, Paul also talks about this love of God, and he says that God shows his love towards us. God moved towards us. Right? If we want to break this down to like high school romance, it's the most popular person who I'm infatuated with, who does not know I exist on the planet, one day looked at me and moved towards me and asked me what my name was. <laughs> because I was in the way or something, right? But whenever someone moves towards us, gives us attention, it invites it into relationship. How much more meaningful is it when God recognizes us and moves towards us, not because we're in his way, not because we inconvenienced him, not because we broke something here on earth. He moves towards us while we are his enemy, all right, and he loves us. He does something that we would not naturally do for others, especially for enemies. And so God initiates and moves towards us and invites us into relationship through his love. And what we see progressed here is that the Bible reveals not just the greatest love story ever told, and David's love here, especially in verse 11, we start to see it, moves him to delight in God's word. Let's, let's look at verse 11. It says, I have stored up your word in my heart. All right? This love that invites him into relationship causes David to want to be in the presence of God and to hear his words. And this, is, this is also very practical, all right? In fact, I, I can think of a very real historic moment and experience in my own heart and life when I started to desire the very presence of a specific individual and I found myself gravitating towards listening to the very words they spoke. I took great joy and pleasure I was somewhat of a hopeless romance. Thankfully, Carol was very practical and sensible and kept some sense of foundation and sanity within our relationship. But I found myself desiring to be in her presence. I would anticipate. I would be looking, all right? I was joyful. Every morning when I'd wake up and walk into the college campus cafeteria, I'd scan the audience. Didn't care what was on the menu. It's the same thing every day anyways, and it's no good. But I was excited to eat whatever it was beside Kara, right? Her presence and her words. Her words became very significant and meaningful to me. Not simply because she spoke poetry. She, she actually didn't uh, speak much poetry to me, actually. Uh, she did write me a song, though. She did write me a song, and it was a very good song. Uh, but... Uh, what I started to realize, spending more time with Kara, listening to her words, began to reveal her nature to me. I began to love the person I was knowing, and I wanted to know more about their nature. God's word, all right, does the same thing. God's word reveals his nature. And the more we dive into his word, the more we get to understand his nature in his word, all of a sudden, the more we begin to understand how much more beautiful 
God is. How much more desirable God is than anything we could ever imagine. The nature of God is beautiful, and we begin to see his nature revealed through his word. And so this is an important part of the progression in learning and getting to the point of delighting in God's commands. God's nature is more beautiful than anything we can imagine. And I want to just do a quick recap of where we're at at this point. I want us to consciously think about this process that we've been outlining. God's love invites us into relationship. All right, let's think of that as step one. Step two could be that through a loving relationship, we begin to delight in God's word. All right, our affections grow, they're stirred up. And as we get to know God through his word, he reveals his nature. All right, that could be step three. And step four would be that it's his nature. It's his nature that convicts us and convinces us he is not just trustworthy, but that his commands are a delight. All right? You can't delight in someone's commands if you don't trust them. All right? Trust is critical. And you base your trust in someone based upon their character, the reliability of them to be consistently good in what they do. If someone keeps hurting me, I don't trust them. Okay? If someone keeps betraying me, if someone keeps letting me down, I don't trust them. If I see immoral character, bad character, I don't trust them. And I'm definitely not going to trust their words. If they tell me to do something, I'm going to be like, mm, probably not. You're not someone I'm going to follow because I know that following you is going to lead towards something bad. Death, destruction, imprisonment, something bad. Okay? But God, knowing his nature, knowing his character, I can trust him. And as I trust him with my life, as I listen to his words, as I obey his commands, I too can experience what David and what John experienced. I too can experience the delight in his commands. Lila's not feeling so great this morning. And she came to me with what I believe to be genuine sorrow. She said, Dad, I don't want to miss the message this morning. That gave me such delight. So I told her, you don't have to. We'll pull up the live stream. You can watch it. I printed off a little bulletin, so I'm sure she's there right now, diligently writing away. But such delight. But I can't take credit for the delight my soul experienced in the expression of my daughter. That is the evidence of the Spirit of God. When I'm faithful and leading my family the way God has called me to, the hard way God has called me to, faithful to my wife, love her, care for her, cherish her, provide for her, even accommodate some of her, her requests that might not seem reasonable to me at times, but I know demonstrate affection and over years, I have learned to even delight in some of the obscure requests she might make. Okay? So much so, we can also delight 
from God's request, no matter how obscure they might seem at times, because God says some things in his words that are very not natural, like delighting in commands, okay? Like learning to die to yourself, like surrendering everything. I mean, think about what he asked his disciples to do. Leave everything. Your parents, your family, your work, your possessions. Leave it all. Your positions, your esteem. You know, we think about the disciples who were fishermen, which was a low-class job, and think, well, that must have been easy to just walk away from that. They didn't really have much of a gig going on anyways. You know, what about the disciples who were tax collectors? What about the disciples who were, who were rich and wealthy? They also left because they knew in Christ there was greater delight and joy than in anything in this world. And I have reaped, I have experienced the delight, not just through my family, but there are very practical other ways on a daily basis. We can find the joy, peace, and love of God even when our circumstances aren't great. So my argument here is that what does it mean to delight in God's commands? It means that we literally, like David, like John, experience in tangible, practical ways the very joy, love, and peace of Jesus himself. Not a counterfeit, secondary, substitute, love, joy, and peace but the very same that exists within God is given to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And what's beautiful about this delight is that it is not circumstantially based. That is a source of strength and encouragement for me. David experienced delight in obeying God's command. He experienced great joy. He experienced great pleasures of which this world cannot even compete, okay? I mean, even in Hollywood, they seem to portray in their movies a reality that although they might say it's great to live for yourself, at the end of the day, which character do people appreciate the most? The one with integrity, the one who did the hard work, the one who sacrificed for the betterment of others, the one who was faithful to his family, all right? He is elevated more than the one who lives for himself, the coward, the selfish individual, the villain. Even the world gets it, but they don't believe it ultimately. They're missing the full picture of the pleasures and joy God has in store for us. So what were some of the things David practically experienced pleasures in? How did obeying God's commands literally bring great pleasures into David's life here on the earth? Let's think about this a little bit, all right? When God was ready to anoint another king, David was not there in the lineup of Jesse's sons. Jesse brought in all of the sons worthy of kingship, but David, this small, young one, was left out shepherding. But did God focus on the outward essence of Jesse's sons? Was he impressed by the strength, by the height, by the accomplishments of the older sons? No. God saw David 
and he saw David's heart. And he said, even there, as a young man in the field with his sheep, there is a man after my own heart that delights in my command. And he told Samuel, these aren't the ones, there's another one. And he calls David in. David experienced the blessing of delighting in God's command and was anointed as the second king of Israel. That's practical. That's tangible. That's experiential. Okay? What else did David take delight in? In fact, I was talking to Kara about this a little bit. David was a musician. I'm not a very good musician. Thankfully, I take great joy and pleasure in other things, okay? But a musician finds great joy in their music, in their songs. It ministers to their soul. Many of us appreciate music, but a musician appreciates it in a whole other way, right? David was given this gift, this blessing, this skill from God to worship him through music and to minister to other people through music. That's a tangible, practical way David experienced delight in his faithfulness to God. God also blessed David by giving him victory over Goliath. Not just Goliath, but David's courage and faithfulness in doing what God called him to do gave him victory over all of his enemies. It was under David's rule that Israel experienced peace. How practical and relevant would that not be for the Jews today? To have a leader who puts themselves under God's authority and will be able to bring the very power of God because he has promised when they will call out to him, when they will be faithful to him, he will bless them and they will be secure. No one comes after God's own. Okay? And so in our own lives, we see practical, tangible ways. God says, if I am for you, who else can be against us, against him? So we take delight in his protection. David experienced that. Israel, the nation, experienced that. David was promised that the Messiah would come through his line. He was given a, pract- a, a, a son to sit on the throne. His son was blessed through a season of peace in Israel's nation. His son was blessed to be able to build the temple. Those are, a, a father doesn't get much deeper blessings than seeing their children flourish and grow and be able to do the things they delighted in their heart and desired to do. David knew that Solomon would build the temple. God had promised that. David took delight in that. But David also took delight in knowing that God had promised his Messiah, the eternal king who would sit on the throne forever, was going to come through his line. David was greatly blessed. If you're wondering why did he delight in his commands, read scripture and just start listing all of the practical ways. But even all those things, like Job, Job is another individual greatly blessed by God who was faithful to God and obeyed God and experienced the delight in God's commands. And in Job's situation, everything was taken away, right? Job, Job lost everything. But he still worshipped God and he did not curse God. Okay? Because Job and David both knew 
that the blessings of God, the delight in his commands, are not limited to this current life, but they have eternal elements, okay? Obeying God's command brings greater pleasure into eternity, greater pleasure, greater joys, greater delight than we could ever imagine. Whatever you are giving up in this temporary world is nothing compared to what we have to gain at the throne of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus. Nothing to compare. I know that we live in a broken world, right? We know our nation is broken. We know our economy is broken. We know our community is broken. We are corrupt people. We as a nation have turned our back on God. We are trying to do what is right in our own eyes. And so it can be harder to find the delight in our circumstances. Perhaps it's your own body. Your physical body has been cursed by sin. It's plagued with disease. You are experiencing the trauma of death slowly. We all are dying. And as I've been told, the closer you get to death, the later you get in life, things hurt more. All right? You don't rebound as quickly. Okay? And in that pain, it can be very easy to start to forget, to start to doubt the very delight and joys of God. But it's in that pain that we need to cling on to the eternal greater pleasure because Jesus' love is more real than my dying body. And it's his love that will resurrect my dying body and give me a new resurrected body that will never know pain, suffering, corruption in a heaven that will never know brokenness and evil. So when everything else around us is falling apart, including our own bodies, rest in the very character of God and his very promises and delight in the things you have not yet tasted and seen but are promised to taste and see. My last point here, and and somewhat of a practical one, is how can we express our delight? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time in how we can express our delight in God's commands, but I, I, I almost just want to introduce this idea, okay? David expressed his delight in God through worship, right? He took his delight and he made a song. He worshiped God. Maybe you remember the scene when the Ark of the Covenant is coming into Jerusalem and he's dancing and there's potentially sacrifices going on every six feet. They take bringing the Ark in to Jerusalem. And at the end, there's this huge celebration. He's sending cakes home with everyone, all right? And meat and food. Everyone was celebrating. Everyone was open. He worshiped God. Worshiping God is often simultaneous to praising God and giving thanks, thanksgiving, all right? These are all outpouring or types of worship. As we think about this week of thanksgiving, I hope that it is the delight in God's commands that draw you to worship and give thankfully, all right? 
that you give other things. This is not natural. In fact, this is just as mysterious as delighting in commands is thanksgiving. Maybe we're more comfortable with that idea because we have a holiday that celebrates it, but we're often more thankful to receive, right, than we are thankful to give, especially when that giving requires sacrificial, generous, regular giving, all right? I'd rather Thanksgiving be defined by a turkey, mashed potatoes, and a full meal that somehow benefits me in the end. But the Thanksgiving we see in Scripture portrayed by the characters in Scripture is that of sacrifice, is that of generosity, gracious giving. And the most clear example is Jesus Christ himself, right? He ultimately demonstrated that. We see examples in the Old Testament and we see examples in the New Testament of thanksgiving. But even in the Old Testament, I want to challenge you that the command to give a tithe was not a heavy, burdensome command, but actually a delight worship for God. Temple worship was a delight and was to be done out of a heart of worship. In fact, God's command to give a tithe was not a burdensome tax. It was a celebration out of the abundance that God had already given them. He owns it all. He's given you so much. And out of our gratitude, we gave back. Proverbs reminds us of this as well, that we honor the Lord with our wealth, with the first fruits of all the produce that he has given to us. Okay? The New Testament also demonstrates these examples. In fact, the, the church, the first century church, is a beautiful picture. What did the believers in Acts 2 do when the Spirit of God came upon them and they heard the gospel preached and they received it. They sold everything. They came together regularly and they made sure that everyone's needs were met. They gave graciously, sacrificially, generously to the amount that they could for the proclamation and the growth of the church, for the care of the believers, their brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? And... and Paul reminds us that God desires a cheerful giver, right? He wants a cheerful giver, not someone who's reluctant. So I want to challenge us, as we think about Thanksgiving this week, that we would reflect in our heart, has the love of God compelled you to delight in his commands, and will you worship him from a heart of delight? And will you also give thankfully towards those in need, towards your church, to the point where it even hurts. And then realize that there is even more delight to be found in God than the pains of the sacrifices of giving sacrificially of ourselves. He wants all of us, and he won't settle for less of it. And our delight will only be compounded as we trust him more. Let us close in prayer.